What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk with Tom Lutz. He travels around the world to places none of us have been, and he writes about the people he meets there. The third book in this series has just been published. It's called The Kindness of Strangers. Tom Lutz is founding editor of the LA Review of Books, now celebrating its 10th anniversary. He's also distinguished professor and chair of creative writing at UC Riverside. He's written many books. I think my favorite is his wonderful novel, Born Slippy. Tom Lutz, welcome back. Oh, thanks, John. Very glad to be here. Where are you today? Uh, I am today I'm in Nizwa, a little town in the mountains of Oman. A little town in the mountains of Oman. Oman, I have my map here of the Arabian Peninsula so I can keep track of you. Oman is kind of around the corner of the Persian Gulf. It's, uh, the, bottom, it's the bottom right corner of the Arabian Peninsula. It's not Yemen. I'm so glad you're not in Yemen. Oh, I wish I was in Yemen. I've, <laughs> I've, been, I've been dying to go to Yemen. How many countries have you visited in all? You know, it depends on how you count. There are the United Nations countries, and then there are a whole bunch of other countries. And so depending on how you count, somewhere between 120 and 150. So you must be just about finished visiting all the countries of the world. No, no, I have uh, almost 100 to go. Uh, when you travel, I know you have some rules that you follow. Let, let's uh, review those. First of all, you stay only at high-end resorts. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, you know, if it doesn't have a beach, I'm not going. No. <laughs> I do. I, I, I've been getting a little bit, um, a little bit Lord luxurious in my old age. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, sleeping on mats in Indian truck stops as often. So this, uh, my hotel tonight is $43. That's something I wouldn't have allowed myself a decade ago. And another one of your rules is that your wife always travels with you because you are inseparable. <laughs> we we uh, we do love traveling together, 
as long as it's someplace that Lori would like to go. And um, and she does not like uh, a lot of the, she does not want to go to the lot, a lot of the places that I want to go to. So we we go together everywhere that she'd like to go. Um, and then uh, there's those places that she's not interested in. Oman, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, this particular trip Oman, she was uninterested in all of them. Uninterested is a very nice way of putting it. So uh, how do you, and when you get to uh, Oman or Qatar, how do you start conversations with people? You know, for, for a long time, my, my secret weapon was my camera. Even when the iPhone was taking pictures that were just as good as, the, as my kind of Costco um, Nikon, I, I, having the big camera just catches people's attention. They know you're a tourist. And so they know they don't, they're never going to have to talk to you again. Um, and, uh, and so, and that frees people up a little bit. And, um, I could ask them if I could take a picture, if I could, I'd take a picture, I'd show them the picture of themselves on my readout. We'd have a little conversation about it. We'd retake it, which it, it became a, it was a really great tool, especially when there was no language. Um, so my Arabic is, is I have five phrases in Arabic um, total, so that doesn't get us very far. And when I when I had no language, the camera was a great, great tool. Now uh, it's more, just as common for people to ask to take my picture as it is for me to ask to take their picture because everybody has a smartphone um, all over the world. Not everybody, obviously, but so many people do. And so the the the, the cameras now are are not quite as good a tool, but they still work. They still allow us to talk about something that's happening right in front of us. And so we can gesture and point and everything makes makes a bit of sense. Proper nouns, of course, are, are the great communication tool. Proper nouns. Proper nouns. You can say Trump anywhere. Ah, I want to I get back to that in just a minute. This volume, The Kindness of Strangers, when it opens in March 2020, you are in Manila en route to Papua New Guinea, when a note was slipped under the door of your hotel room. Yeah, I was just um, trying to get it in under the wire. I, we kind of knew that something very bad was starting to happen everywhere around the world. But I had this trip on the books for a long time. And I just thought, Papua New Guinea, there's not a single case of, of any COVID in Papua New Guinea. So how, why should I worry about going there? And uh, very, very few cases in the Philippines. The Philippines started shutting down um, very quickly. Um, it's one of the one of the times when an authoritarian government is very handy, if you want to ensure public health measures. So um, Duterte, you know, for everything that he does, horribly, horribly, murderously wrong, he did um, jump on the COVID and 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 shut shut things down. So I got a note saying the hotel is closing on Wednesday. I think this was. And what day Sunday, was this? On a Sunday. And then, uh, you know, the next day, uh, next morning, I got a note that said we're closing down tomorrow. Four hours later, I got a note saying we're closing down in three hours. Um, and so everybody had to leave the hotel. And of course, Duterte had shut down the taxis that morning. So everybody had to get to the airport <laughs> and leave. And there were, no, there were no taxis to get people to the airport. It was a, it was a bit of a... a, a a, a nightmare. I also kind of, as I was sitting in the hotel room right after that note came, for the first time, it occurred to me, not that I had to worry about myself, but that I was a potential vector and that I could have been patient zero in Papua New Guinea. 
And so I'd already canceled my flight to New Guinea um, and then turned around and came home anyway. Well, we're very glad you got home. So all of this book is about before COVID, Madagascar. You met a fascinating guy in Madagascar. Madagascar is a big island in the Indian Ocean off the east coast of Africa. Uh, this guy had been in the French Foreign Legion. Why? And and how did that work out for him? He he was um, he was a really interesting um, kid. I mean, I um, I think everybody under forty is a, is a kid to me somehow <laughs> okay. now nowadays. Okay. But um, he was a young a young man who uh, really uh, smart and interesting and uh, talented in a lot of different ways. He's a heavy metal bass player, among other things. Wow. Um, so we, we, he played a lot of his music for me and we talked, we talked music a lot. He, um, he joined the French Foreign Legion for the same reason that a lot of um, immigrant kids and poor kids in America join the army. It, it's, it's a ladder out of socioeconomic position that's not good. So it was, it was a way for him to kind of move up a, a kind of economic and social ladder. And uh, he was not happy with the experience, but he, but he was he was happy to have the opportunity. And where did the French Foreign Legion send him? Well, they sent him first to Castle Maudry, which is uh, in the in the southern Dordogne or maybe the, the eastern Provence. It's in the, you know, kind of south central France. Uh, so he did his basic training there. Uh, he did a sh short bit in Chad. I think he was in Djibouti. Um, uh, the French have a huge base in Djibouti, and then um, came home. He also he also spent time on the uh, Na Madagascar national rugby team. Wow! So, yeah, yeah, just a, a a great guy. You flew to an island in the middle of the Pacific, part of the Marshall Islands, an island called Kwajalein. You called it the oddest island in the Pacific, and they wouldn't let you get off the plane there. This is United Flight 155, although other people did get off. They didn't let you get off, even though it's a U.S. territory. Why didn't they let you off the plane? It is a U.S. military base. It is a it is 100% U.S. military, U.S. military contractors, and uh, a few people who work there, uh, who used to live there. And live on a neighboring island now, um, and we're we're kicked off the island by the U.S. military. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's the equivalent of Guantanamo um, in the Pacific. And and what does Kwajalein look like? Why is it the oddest island? It's it's um, completely paved over. Uh, there are a bunch of gray buildings. Many of them look like they have radar. You know, they're round on the top. Radar installations of various kinds. And there's nothing but that kind of military base. Uh, you know, in Los Angeles, there's something a little reminiscent of a movie studio about it. There's these big buildings, all very drab. And then along one side, there's a golf course. It's the only green on the island. And this, the, 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 the Marshall Islands has the, the smallest amount of arable land per human inhabitant of almost anywhere on Earth. Well, I thought you said that the, the bigger island of the Marshalls, that the road is what? There's a road that's like 10 miles long or something? That's kind of a long island. Yes, it's very long, but it's very thin. It, a lot of, a lot of, along, the, along that road, um, most of the time, there's nothing on the side except for the kind of breakwater rocks. It's just uh, the island is as wide as the road. It's an old kind of volcano rim with a lagoon in the middle. 
right? And so that that um, that that road kind of follows around, and it connects what might in another year or two become separate islands because obviously the water is rising um, and it's only a, a foot or two off the ground. And the runway at the Kwajalein uh, Airport, how far is the runway above sea level? It's it's one foot. One foot. One foot above sea level. <laughs> when, I, when I was there, you know, I was watching the I was watching the screen on the plane that tells you what your altitude is. And usually, you know, you come down and you come down and it hits two hundred or so when you land. Uh, it, it, this was this was uh, came down to one. Wow. Kwajalein is near the famous island of Bikini. Why didn't you visit Bikini? The, the Bikini of the island itself is 400 miles away. Uh, it's also was the place where the U.S. did its nuclear bomb testing. So it's it's been destroyed. It's actually starting to come back. There's some some a, a few people starting to repopulate it. But most of the Bikini Islanders, of course, were a lot of them have died of radiation poisoning because they were too close to the blasts. Um, a, a lot um, have uh, are ill, um, and uh, the rest of them are, are almost almost entirely um, re re repatriated to other islands or other places altogether. Yeah, this story is told in the wonderful documentary Atomic Cafe, which shows a news documentary from the period about removing the Bikini Islanders. Uh, before the blast. Now, the nuclear testing the United States did on Bikini in the 50s, th these were bombs uh, bigger than the Hiroshima bomb, I think. Hundreds of times bigger, and, and they dropped hundreds of bombs that were hundreds of times bigger. So, And then you visited Managua, Nicaragua, uh, well known to all of us 40 years ago when we all supported the Sandinistas when they overthrew the dictatorship of Somoza. Sandinistas led by Daniel Ortega, but that was 40 years ago, and the Sandinistas not in power have changed. One sign of that was actually a, a neon sign that you saw, the biggest sign in downtown Managua. What was that sign? The Seminole Casino. This is Seminole, the, the Native Americans of Florida. Yes. How did they get to Managua, Nicaragua? They won the contract to open a casino in Managua, um, which was part of the which part of the a government program to you know bring business to the uh, to the country. Um, it's it was it's since been sold a couple of times and um, and uh, it's no longer owned by the Seminole tribe. And and you found some some symbolism in the fact that there was an Indian casino in the capital of Nicaragua. One of the things I've noticed is that there are, there are very different relations between the uh, uh, indigenous peoples of country A and indigenous peoples of country country B, and especially in in um, Central America, that difference is very striking. And in some places where you just don't see a lot of evidence of indigenous culture. It's it's kind of noticeably lacking because you I'm, I was I was doing a lot of driving around from country to country, and you just kind of mo move from one country where where it was part of a of a vibrant mix, you know, sometimes very fraught mix of of peoples, uh, to to places like Nicaragua where it's not, especially in the cities. So to see this the Seminole uh, sign on the side of that building, in a nation that in in a, in a city uh, Managua with uh, very little in the way of indigenous culture um, was striking in and of itself. And the kind of 
You, you, you remember the Sandinistas, Sandinistas. We love the Sandinistas. Yes, we do. Uh, the Sandinistas are now the upper class. Uh, and, and of course, a lot of them were from the upper class um, to, to start with, but they're, but they're, they are the, they are the governmental class and they are part of a system of oppression in that country that are, that is quite horrifying to this day. And uh, so to see the, that kind of historical oppression highlighted in neon on the side of the building in the center of the governmental oppression was, was striking. So this book covers a period while Trump was still uh, president. And you said the, the, the name Trump could often uh, be a, open a door to a conversation. You report that in Bangladesh, you ran into one guy, maybe the only guy on in this whole book who said, I love Trump. What was his story? Well, I was very interested to find out because he was he was with a group of young young men. We were we were, you know, just chatting. Um, I was taking everybody's picture. Everybody was taking my picture. And and when he said that, I, I looked at him and he he gave me a look that I couldn't decipher. I couldn't figure out what exactly he was trying to signal to me. And so, uh, you know, we've kind of I wandered around and, and, and uh, the crowd loosened up and I finally got a chance to talk to him alone. And he said, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I really like Trump. I just don't like to get on the bandwagon. <laughs> with everyone. You know, everybody hates Trump. And so I'm that's just me. That's just who I am. I, I don't like to immediately go with the crowd. <laughs> so and I just an iconoclast. And then you asked them, well, if he loved Trump, what did he think about Obama? <laughs> and he said, Obama is a god. <laughs> so, you know, obviously he was not a Trump supporter. I, I also ran into a guy in I don't know if, is that, if this is in this book or not, but I ran into a guy in Hong Kong and he was wearing a Make America Great Again cap. And I, and I did a, a kind of quick double take. And he immediately put his hands up and he said, it's ironic. <laughs> <laughs> so big picture here. The title of the book is The Kindness of Strangers. Of course, your friends and family worry you will be robbed and beaten or you know kidnapped and held for ransom. Apparently, you have not been kidnapped and held for ransom. Not yet. Not yet. Nope. And uh and, you know, there, there are a number of times where I thought I was getting kidnapped. There was there were some there were some dicey moments here and there. But I just always think I've been thinking this for years and years. I mean, this this title and the kind of the emphasis in various of these chapters is about this idea that that people are so kind to me everywhere I go. And, and it's not just because. In hotels, people want to tip, and be, you know, and and guides want to tip, and you know, there, there, people have financial reasons to be nice to me sometimes. So there's that. But I just walking down the street, people are very, very kind, over and over and over again. And if let me let me interrupt here because you were overcharged for a fish dinner in Djibouti. <laughs> yes, I was. Uh, that guy was hilarious. Uh, he he was so unperturbed. I, I, he didn't just overcharge me. He overcharged everybody. <laughs> I was sitting there eating my fish, and I heard a guy screaming at him. They got in this big fight, and I started thinking, "Oh, well, this is interesting." I was it was my maybe my first day in Djibouti. I was like, "This is interesting. This is a country where people scream at each other a lot." I guess <laughs> I've, I've been here for an hour, and here we got a guy screaming, and then another. It, 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 
argument ended with the guy going off in a huff. 10 minutes later, another guy, and by the way, there were three diners, me and these two guys <laughs> I'm talking about. So one guy left in a huff. The second guy screamed at him and left in a huff. And then when I got my bill, I realized why they were screaming. It wasn't Djibouti, it was this guy. And he was just charging, you know, $50 for a, for a, for a 50 cent fish. And so it was, it was a, uh, yeah, you, you, you get ripped off, but that's not, that's, that's also very rare. People, people are much more likely to kind of give you, say you, you, you've, I, I didn't give you enough change. They're much more likely to, to refuse to take a tip. Um, they're, they're much more likely to just ask you to come into their house and have dinner, come, come to their, come to their kid's wedding. <laughs> they're, they're just, it's, uh, it's remarkable. And I often thought, you know, if I was, as poor as a lot of the people I was hanging out with, and I, somebody like me walked into the room, I would bonk me over the head and take my camera and my computer and 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 get, have a year's worth of income from it. I mean, it's just it's it's remarkable the the wealth that I walk around with in my little ratty backpack compared to the annual incomes and and gross wealth of the people that I'm talking to. But that doesn't that doesn't make it impossible for us to have these incredible moments of uh, interesting communion out of out of nothing. So uh, I just wanted to kind of say that with this book and write it up a little bit. The Kindness of Strangers is Tom Lutz's new book. He's speaking to us today from somewhere in Oman on the Saudi Peninsula. Tom, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.